Greetings, and welcome to the Get Hiking Southeast podcast. I'm Joe Miller, and I'll be leading this adventure. Why me? Why am I at the front of the pack? Well, for the last decade or so, I've been leading hikes and backpack trips in the Southeast, and for nearly three decades, I've been writing about adventure in the region as a newspaper columnist, guidebook author, and as a blogger. Our focus in the Get Hiking Southeast podcast, telling the stories of the hikers and the trails, especially those lesser-known trails in the southeastern United States. Welcome to the Get Hiking Southeast News. Eh, okay, so I'm no Lester Holt, or even Lester Nessman. Anyway, every episode we will start with a brief news report, trail news that's important to you from throughout the Southeast. We will share some of the news of the week with you, but because there's so much going on and because some of it may not be relevant to you, we think it's more helpful if we empower you to find the news that's pertinent to you. This week, we start with news from the National Forest Service, and we start here because of all the playgrounds that we have at our disposal in the southeast. National forests are far and away the biggest. In North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, there are a combined 4.2 million acres of National Forest Service land alone. That compares to about 570,000 acres of state parkland, so it's a huge part of where we play. That's why it's important that you know what's going on in your local national forest. Let's say you're planning a weekend camping trip. A quick visit to the news and events page of your local national forest website. And I should mention that these sites are presented by state, so that on the North Carolina page, you will find the Croatan, the Nantahala, the Pisgah, and the Uari National Forest all on the same page. I should mention, too, that we will have links to all of the following in our show notes and in an accompanying blog at getgoingnc.com. Uh, Let's see, where were we? Ah, yes. If you're planning to take a weekend camping trip to your local national forest, it would behoove you to visit the news and events section of the Forest Service site, marked as such on the homepage, and what facilities may remain closed as a result of the pandemic. You'll also find out about fire damage. That group camping trip, I don't know about you, but a camping trip, winter, spring, summer, or fall, that doesn't involve a campfire is not a camping trip. It is a vital part of the group camping experience. Check to make sure that the fire danger isn't high and that you are allowed to have a fire before heading out. You'll also find out about closures. Take, for instance, up in Virginia. If you were planning a hike to Spy Rock from the Montbello Fish Hatchery, you better think again. That trail and the parking lot are closed as of December 18th and are closed until April 30th. There is, however, an alternate route to Spy Rock, which you can find on the site. Over on the Tennessee page, you would learn that the Unaka Mountain Road is closed due to winter weather, which could affect a visit to the Unaka Mountain Recreation Area. You'll also find information about maps. Maps, maps, maps. Don't even think about heading out into the wild, or even the not-so-wild, without a map. Each site has some information on maps that are available, including some of the best online maps for that particular forest. In Virginia, for instance, they tend to recommend the Avenza map and uh, give some reasons why. 
Also on the website, you will find alerts and notices, which cover some of what we've discussed earlier, but you'll also find some vital information for campers and backpackers. One particular thing of interest, if you're camping, where bear activity has been up. Checking, for instance, can tell you whether a bear canister is required in certain areas for backpacking. It can also tell you whether a camping area has been closed because of bear activity. And that does happen. They, they typically will close an area down for a couple weeks in the hopes that the bears will head other uh, places for their food. One helpful feature that you will find for the Francis Marion and Sumter National Forests in South Carolina is a compilation of current conditions at both national forest recreation areas. For instance, it is here that you would learn that the Parsons Mountain Recreation Area is closed and will not reopen until May 1st, 2021. Then, with all the information right in front of you, you can scan up and down and check to see what your alternatives might be. Checking these websites is not only prudent before taking a trip, a trip that could be torpedoed because the access road is snowed in or the campsite is closed, it can also prove to be a rabbit hole, not one of the bad rabbit holes, a productive rabbit hole that provides a way to discover new places to explore. That Yunaka road closure notice from the Cherokee National Forest site, that made me wonder where Yunaka road was and what impact it might have on an adventurous type. So I googled it and discovered it fed something called the Unaka Mountain Recreation Area, which I discovered abutted North Carolina, my home state. So I plugged Unaka Mountain Recreation Area into all trails and discovered five trails, several of which would be worth the four-hour drive. And just in time, too, because my dance card for 2021 is starting to fill pretty quickly. So, two good reasons to check out your National Forest Service websites. One, to help make sure that the hike you want to take, you can take. And two, the sites can help you find places to explore that you might not even know exist. We'll include the links to the National Forest we mentioned in our show notes, along with some additional helpful information. And when we take it, we'll report back on our trip to the Anaka Mountains. Every once in a while here on the Get Hiking Southeast podcast, we're going to go literary on you, sharing a favorite piece of outdoor writing or retelling a story either long forgotten or pretty obscure to begin with. Today, we share from a 2017 essay by John Tuohy on who may well be the first people, the first people of European descent at least, to hike the length of the East Coast. Who they are and when they did it may surprise you. Earl Schaefer Grandma Gatewood. When we think of the earliest long hikers in the southeast, these are the two names that come to mind. Schaefer was the first known person to through-hike the Appalachian Trail, the 2,100-mile pedestrian passage from Springer Mountain in Georgia to Mount Katahdin in Maine. He did it in uh, 1948 in 124 days. And uh, Grandma Gatewood, she became the first woman to through-hike the trail. In fact, she did it three times. She did it the first time in 1955 at the age of 67, and the last time in 1963 at the age of 75. Both hiked the trail at a time when it barely existed, and in fact, in some places, it really didn't exist. There were no maps, there were no shuttles into town, no outfitters, at least not as we would recognize them today. 
And they did this long before the ultra-right revolution. Plastic was barely on the scene, let alone carbon fiber or dyneema. Canvas, however, was in good supply. These were the true pioneers of walking the length of the East Coast. Or were they? In a 2017 essay, author John Tuhi explores the possibility that Schaefer and Gatewood, Earl and Grandma, were preceded by nearly four centuries by a trio of English sailors who claimed to have walked from La Florida to present-day Nova Scotia in 1569. It's a premise he explores in the essay The Long-Forgotten Walk of David Ingram. Writes Tui, In the autumn of 1569, the Gargarian, I'm not sure if that's correct, I doubt it is, a French trader was moored off Cape Breton in present-day Nova Scotia when its captain, M. Champagne, was alerted to a commotion outside. Three Englishmen sitting in a native canoe were asked to be let on board. Their names were David Ingram, Richard Brown, and Richard Twight, and they told him a story that began in Mexico the year before. In September 1568, they'd been involved in the Battle of San Juan de Ulua, present-day Veracruz, Mexico. I think I got Veracruz right. Uh, de Lua, de Ula, maybe not. Anyway, this battle involved a uh, fleet of Fr- English privateers led by John Hawkins and Francis Drake and Spanish forces under Francisco Lujan. After Hawkins' ship, the Minion, the Minion? Who would name a fighting ship the Minion? Sorry. After Hawkins' ship, the Minion, was damaged, he sailed across the Gulf of Mexico, where he put the crew on shore. European settlements along the Atlantic coast were sparse, and some of the men decided to walk back to San Juan, while others, including Ingram, Brown, and Twyde, intended to follow the coast north in search of English communities. Now, from Florida to San Juan, they were going to walk back? It's rather casual. It's like the bus doesn't come for another 20 minutes. Why don't we just uh, walk it? Anyway... So this trio decides to walk in search of English communities. Back to the text. After some died and others returned south, the three remaining sailors, after more than a year wandering up the eastern coast of North America, reached the fishing village at Cape Breton, Canada, unintentionally becoming, if the story is to be believed, the first Europeans to cross North America. Tui continues, There are two ways to approach the story of Ingram and his shipmate's journey. If you believe the account that Sir George Peckham recorded years later, then it marks the end of a strange and little-known story in North American history. If you have doubts, it becomes the beginning of another that is even stranger in the ways it invokes the visions of empire in Elizabethan England and how they played out in North America. So Tui sets out to find out what he can uh, to verify this story. And one of the things that he does find out for certain is that Ingram apparently did exist. Um, He somehow emerged also as the spokesman for the group. What Tui found out was that uh, Ingram was born in Barking, Essex, was likely a Protestant, probably illiterate, and likely traveled the Atlantic coasts of Europe and the Mediterranean, as well as the African and American coasts. When he and his fellow sailors were put ashore in 1568 due to their injured boat, it had been nearly 30 years since Hernando de Soto's exploration of the southeast. In an account given 13 years after arriving at Cape Breton, 
Ingram describes the societies he meets as kings, short for kingdoms, and in his travels through the southeast especially, he repeatedly refers to the wealth of the people and the cities they inhabit. The the Gazika typically wear rubies, being six inches long and two inches broad. The rulers, that's uh, Ingram talking, the rulers are carried about in a sumptuous chair of silver or crystal. A constant problem with his account, Tui continues, is that the credible and the fantastic often inhabit the same sentence. A crystal sedan chair sounds like something out of a fairy tale, but because copper, silver, and gold were worked in pre-Columbian America, this statement needs only a slight shift in perspective to be plausible. Although it isn't clear what he meant by rubies, especially of that size, more important is his constant reference to cities, a term that in the 16th century equated with civilization and advanced technologies. Midway through the account, Ingram says he and his companions seldom stayed anywhere more than three nights. An exception was the city of Balma, a rich city a mile and a half long, where they stopped about a week. Other cities he named were Okala, Bega, and Gunda. This is quoting um, Ingram. A small town and river, both of that name, and this is the most northerly point that this X was at. (laughs) I'm not sure what that means. They have in every house scoops buckets and divers other vessels of massive silver. Okay, this is... um, Sorry. Anyway... From the period of colonization beginning in the early 17th century until very recently, the argument that the indigenous inhabitants of North American cities, uh, that inhabitants of North America lived in cities, was considered suspect at best. We now know from work being carried out at Cahokia and other sites that into the 14th century there were settlements the size of many in Europe. This is fascinating, because all these towns, these cities, apparently, these civilizations, never heard of, and yet they apparently exist somewhere here in the southeast. Tui says Ingram's account is challenging to follow, in part because it's not presented chronologically, it tends to skip around, and in part because if he didn't know what something was called, he appeared to make up an approximation. For instance, writes Tui, He also talks about a beast twice the size of a horse with tusks that was a natural enemy to the horse. The interesting detail here, continues Tui, is not the beast. Ingram describes several unlikely creatures, but that apparently preys on horses. Standard histories of the horse in North America posit its return after becoming extinct in the area between 8,000 and 12,000 years ago, as beginning with Cortez in Mexico in 1519. There are alternative indigenous histories that say it was a domesticated animal before the arrival of Europeans. Ingram appears to be saying that he saw horses north of Florida, which could support the indigenous histories or equally indicate how rapidly the horse population spread once it turned feral. When Ingram came claims to have seen a bird thrice as big as eagle, very beautiful to behold, with a crest or tuft of feathers of sundry colors on the top of the head, he could feasibly be describing a condor, a bird Lewis and Clark later observed on the Columbia River. 
One of his most infamous claims, however, beggars belief. He did also see in that country both elephants and ounces. Ounces, writes Tui, are lynx. Sometimes bobcats or pumas, but there is nothing ambiguous about his use of the word elephants. Because he may never have seen one in the flesh and knew only that it were that they were big animals, it sounds plausible that he assumed a dissonant bison was an elephant, except that elsewhere he clearly identifies bison. More likely, he made it up, either to please Peckham, this was the guy that was interviewing him, and to affirm an idea Peckham had already put in his head, or because in the years since the journey, Ingram had forgotten details and tried to compensate. Whatever the case, the sentence sits there in the middle of the text is grist for anyone who wants to claim the whole journey was an invention. Finally, I find this part particularly interesting. Quote, Ingram and his friends expected that they would inevitably reach European settlements along the coast. It is easier for us to forget that although England's first formal attempts at colonization were still more than a decade away, its privateers had been making regular unofficial visits. For most of the century, French and Spanish fleets had been frequently turning up the coast, which had appeared on maps since the 1530s in a form recognizable to us today. If these communities did exist in the 1560s, but not in the 17th century, when French and English explorers began charting the area, it is uh, excuse me, it is likely to be further evidence of the devastation European diseases wreaked throughout the area. <clears throat> now, this wouldn't be the first case in which towns were described that would be, in a short time, uh, gone from existence. In the 1540s, the Spanish conquistador Francisco de Orellana described the extensive communities along the Amazon. By the time Pedro Texaria arrived in the Amazon in the 1630s, the area that Orellana had described as heavily populated was largely deserted. The assumption was that Orellana had invented details to encourage settlement. Not uncommon, kind of like a modern-day real estate developer. Recent aerial and archaeological surveys, however, have revealed a long-hidden network of roads and field systems where Orellana said he saw so many people. Ingram could have seen something very similar along the tributaries of the Mississippi. So imagine that. Imagine on this wayward trek up the East Coast that Ingram and his two amigos may not have had the resupply towns that we associate with the Appalachian Trail today, places like Hot Springs and Harper's Ferry, but rather vast communities that have long since disappeared back into the earth, communities you may very well walk over on your hikes today. Finally, Tui notes that while some of Ingram's journey may have may be suspect, he, quote, did leave one lasting legacy, end quote. Quoting directly from Ingram's account, and this part is in ye olde English, so bear with me. <clears throat> there is also another kind of fowl in that country, which, uh, blah, 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 near the islands, they are the shape, and I'm assuming size, of a goose, but their wings have callow feathers and cannot fly. They have white heads, and therefore, the countrymen call them penguins. Tui notes, etymologies of the word penguin indicate it was first used to describe the ox of the northern hemisphere, and not the penguins of the south. Anxious to please, perhaps, Ingram was the first to re- on record to claim its origin was a word used by indigenous North Americans that sounded similar to the Welsh for whitehead, penguin. 
The now extinct great auk could be immediately defined by the white spot on its head. So, elephants, condors, penguins, great cities that no longer exist? That is the long-forgotten walk of David Ingram. That is our show for this week. We hope you liked it, and we hope you'll be back. In the meantime, a reminder that the Get Hiking Southeast podcast is a part of the Get Hiking and Get Backpacking universe, where instead of just telling you about great places to go, we actually take you there. Coming up in January, we have a Get Backpacking three-day, two-night trip on the 21-mile Nusiak Trail in the Croatan National Forest of coastal North Carolina. That's the weekend of Friday, January 8th through Sunday, January 10th. We have two Get Hiking Winter Wild Adventures, which are largely off-trail day hikes that do an especially good job of whisking you away from the marauding masses. This month's trips are both on North Carolina game lands, on Sunday, January 3rd to the Butner Falls Lake game lands north of Falls Lake in the Triangle area, and on Sunday, January 17th to the Canswell game lands in the north-central Piedmont, an area known as the Piedmont Plateau. Both hikes will cover somewhere between 5 and 7 miles, and it's somewhere between 5 and 7 miles because they're off-trail, and we can't say for sure. In the weekend of Friday, January 22nd to Sunday, January 24th, we will be holding our first-ever winter coastal escape, a weekend of camping and hiking the swamps, pine savanna, and bay forests in and around Jones Lake State Park. You can learn more about these adventures and everything else we do at getgoingnc.com. Click on Explore with us.